You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. morning. God is good, amen? All right, I'll put that there. All righty, yes, it was hard for me. Sorry, I'm gonna take this off. All right, because I wanted to teach on mothers, because it's Mother's Day, and then we started reading Romans, and last year, Kairos did Romans basically the whole year, we, uh, and so, um, I'm going to do Romans, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but I love you moms, and um, I love you mother. You know, you're out there somewhere in Zoom land, maybe. That's if she's signed on yet. She's like, she could be really slow, but uh, signing on. But, but uh, yeah, teach on Romans, and so here we are. Dear Lord, we just come before you. We give you praise and honor. We thank you for... Lord, just how good you are, Lord. And uh, just lift up this time, Lord. Thank you for the moms and uh, all that they do. They're so amazing. And um, I'm glad I have one and glad I'm married to one. So, Lord, I just, uh, just thank you, Lord. You have blessed them all. Um, just bless them, Lord God. Lord, bless this time we share together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Romans. Right? We just started reading Romans. Did we start reading Romans? Right? Romans is awesome. You know, like I said last year, Cairo spent the year, you know, studying Roman, the book of Romans. And, uh, and Roman lays out the gospel, um, the central message of, of Christianity, you know, the message uh, from God to man. And um, Romans is the gospel. It is. You know, fully explained, it's, it's examined, it's, it's, it's challenged and, you know, and answered and, and, you know, with great clarity and depth. And the wicked, it's about the wickedness of man and the righteousness of God. You know, the depravity of man, you know, the, the wrath of God and the grace of God all come together in this letter. In this letter to the Romans, and um, it's about, you know, the human struggle, the fight, you know, to be good, the, the conviction of, of guilt, the reality of, of the eternity and judgment, and the rescue of God. You know, the biggest questions in, in, in truth, and in, 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 in that God loves sinners. The truth that God loves sinners, and Jesus saves and what it takes to be right with God. That's what Romans is about. That's what it's about. You know, and Paul starts with Romans, you know, and he introduces himself, right? As a man set apart for God's, for the gospel of God. That's who he is. And then boldly states that he's not ashamed. Probably one of the most famous, you know, uh, verses in the Bible. Uh, why don't you turn with me to Romans 1, right? We're going to start with Romans 1.16, and we're going to go, yeah, 
Yeah, let's start with one, Romans 1, 16, all right? And it says, Paul writes, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is, the, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to Jew, and then to the Gentile. For the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, the rest of Romans chapter 1, you know, it, it's very interesting because Paul takes us to court, basically. He takes us to court. You remember that Paul is laying out the gospel, you know, the message of God to man. You know, unashamed, Paul is, is ready to declare it, just as we should be, right? Now, how he shares it is pretty cool. Because beginning in verse 18, Paul's lay, Paul lays out what only can be, be described as a legal case. It's a legal case. You know, it's thorough, it's challenging, and, um, and it leads us uh, decidedly to a verdict. And Paul is, is, a, is, a, is a prosecution in this, in this, in this case. And the, and the trial is serious. It's very serious. You know, so, you know, when you're in court, you can't, work, you can't walk out early, right? You know, a very wise judge knows you don't pass judgment until all the argument is complete. Until everything is complete. All the arguments are heard. So this morning, we're going to go do an overview of the first three chapters of Romans. Yeah, I know, it's a lot. And you're probably thinking... Oh, man, I wanted to get out of here early, you know, go to lunch, take my mom out to lunch, whatever, my wife out to lunch. But the last time I preached, I only took about like 30 minutes, right? I know. It was only about 30 minutes, maybe 35. So I got a little bit of time, you know, saved up for today, okay? So, so hold it. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I do have some extra time somewhere. I'm sure I've been, I've been, been uh, short, shorter than a lot of other people. So, I mean, just saying just saying. So, you know, it's important that we get this right, okay? Right? Also keep in mind that this is the gospel. The whole thing is, uh, is about getting right with God. You know, we're not right. We're messed up, right? But not everyone knows that. A lot of us think all is good. Everyone, a lot of people think that all is good. So first, before getting right, Paul has to prove that we're not right, and that, <laughs> and that happens right in chapter 1. It happens in chapter 1. In court, so as the people enter into court, basically, there are three types of people. Three types of people that enter into court. You know, the first is first are obvious. You know, you have the wicked, right? They're, they're guilty written all over them, you know. Okay, you know. I'm guilty, they know it, they're guilty, and they're the wicked. You know, crammed together, they cram together at the defendant's table, and they, and they, you know, just waiting for the gavel to go, you know, to, be, to go down, you know, saying, okay, you're guilty, you know, you're going to jail, whatever, you get death. Um, then they're the god, they're the godless, right? The godless are like basically in the back of the, the courtroom. So all you guys back there, you're all got, no, I'm kidding, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> the godless are sitting in the back, basically, you know, and they, and they, 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 might, they may not look so bad, 
No, but if you're a believer, you know better. So like, no respect for God. You know, they hide behind their excuses. And, uh, and today they hide, they hide in their seats in the back of the courtroom. And they, you know, they look a little amused at this whole thing because, you know, they're pretty convinced that the judge doesn't even exist, right? And finally come the religious. They look confident, you know, pretty smug and, you know, as if they're waiting, they've been waiting for this all their lives. And they move quickly, you know, to the, to the, to the place where, where they know that they belong, the juror's box. They're going to pass judgment. You know, they're just happy to pass judgment. And, and, and one even moves towards the, you know, the judge's chair and, and you know, and Isaac Gavel like he owns it. But um, so everyone seems to be right in their place. They seem to be right in their place. And you can take your seat wherever you fit in, wherever you fit in, because the, the time has begun. The trial has begun. So Paul steps up, right? Paul steps up and presents his case. And it begins in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And you're like, wait a second. What's up with all this, you know, fire and brimstone and, you know, you know wrath and all this other stuff? You know, the wrath of God, Paul starts with this. You know, you're like looking at it and you're like, wait. You know, yeah, that's right. Because you, you, you can, you know, you can be a good God and still get angry, you know, and, 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 still, get, and still be righteous, right? You know, because you think about it this way. If you, you know, if you ever seen someone getting, you know, hurt or whatever, uh, being attacked or mistreated, and you got really angry, has that ever happened to you? Yeah. You know, you're, were you right or wrong to be angry? You're right. You know, if you love good, then you must hate evil. God is good, and God has wrath. And he says that all, against all the goodness and godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Suppress means to cover up. So they cover up the truth by their wickedness. That's what they do. So look who's on trial first, the godless and the wicked, right? The wicked knew this was coming. They're looking ashamed, and, uh, but the godless roll their eyes in the court because they don't really think it matters. So Paul confronts the God deniers first, and in, in, verse, in verse 19 he says, you know, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that the evidence of God is everywhere. It's everywhere. And watch what he says here. He says, God's invisible qualities are clearly seen. Everything about God is clearly seen. We can see proof of the invisible God in all of creation. I'm sounding like Ted, you know, talking about creation, talking about, you know, trees and stuff, right? But, um, but it's undeniable 
so that the people have no excuse. They do not have an excuse. No, in, in, in this, the word excuse, like, really hits home to me, but it probably hits home to all of us because, you know, I remember growing up, you know, in church and having an excuse for everything, you know? Everything. Why this and why that, you know? And I realized excuses got me um, out of a lot of things, but it never got me into anything. It never did. You know, we have these, uh, we have some scientists in our midst and, uh, you know, I read an example one time of uh, the, the, the probability of creating, uh, forming a cell by chance is about the same as producing like a perfect copy of a book following an explosion of a printing house, right? So like, and, and this guy, this English mathematician and astronomer, he, 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 he made this quote in, in this publish, publication back in the early 80s, and he said that um, so the chance that a higher life form, forms might have emerged, um, he's talking about, you know, he's an evolutionist, right? And he's talking about the, the forming of a cell, and he says, uh, that the chance um, that higher f life forms might have emerged this way is comparable to the chance of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard, um, might sweeping through a junkyard, might assemble a Boeing 747 from the from the materials that's in it. And you know, it's like that's crazy because like you look at the, the things that we see, we see God in everything that, that's around us, in creation, in the, just a little, even just a little cell, in the, in the people that, that, are, uh, that are made. And so we see God everywhere. So people have no excuse to say there is no God. You know, all of creation shouts the evidence of a creator. So Paul takes his case to, you know, the people without excuse. He says in 21, he says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts are darkened. You know, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being the birds, uh, human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Notice this, you know, they traded God for idols. They traded God for empty gods. And here God turns from, Paul turns from the godless to the wicked. You know, we realize that the wickedness is a natural end to godlessness. So if you're godless, the natural end to that is wickedness. And then he says in verse 24, he says, Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for, being, uh, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. See, this is where it gets a little, you know, risque, a little PG-13, right? He says, <laughs> the first result listed of trading God for idols is people follow their sinful hearts into sinful sex. So let's be clear, I, I believe God made sex for good. He made it good. You know, whatever you, whatever you believe, doesn't matter. You know, we can agree that sex is powerful. It's very powerful. It has the power to create a living human being. 
Today we celebrate moms, you know, has the power to create a living human being, to express love profoundly, to make a person feel amazing, to drive a person's will and decisions. But if misused, it can have the power to destroy a life. It can destroy a life. The power to express vile hatred, destroy convictions, break promises, and lose all faith and trust in the ones that they love. Regardless of what you believe, sex should not be taken lightly. It shouldn't. You know, bringing back to the situation, I believe God made sex good and holy. That means set apart. It has to be, it's, it, it's a, it has a special place, right? Like fire, fire is powerful and wonderful, but if you fail to respect this power, it can, you know, destroy everything you hold dear. In verse 24, God, it says, you know, in 20, verse 24, it says, trading God for idols makes people st stupid about sex. That's basically what it says, you know? They exchange the truth of God's, uh, God for a lie. That's what it says in verse 25. And worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised, Amen. In 26, he goes on, he says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And there's that verse, right? The controversial verse. You know, homosexuality, right? Now, remember, you have to hear their entire argument. This is, this is Paul's entire argument. There's no way, other way to read this. You know, homosexuality is described as a shameful act with due penalty. And some people may not like, you know, what I'm saying. This is not me, about my opinion. It's about, not about me. It's about the Bible. This is what the Bible says. You know, it's not a political argument either about the legality of marriage, uh, you know, the core issue uh, here is not um, that loss of morality or, or law, right versus wrong. It's a loss of holiness. That's what it's about, a loss of holiness. You know, sex is holy, but when we leave God behind, everything goes downhill. Everything goes downhill. You know, it's not about, you know, people being born gay or anything like that, you know. But what I, you know, what I do know is that I was born a sinner. Pride, lying, cheating, you know, lust, all of it came easy. Came easy to me. Nobody had to teach me. Nobody had to teach me. But that doesn't make it good. All of that destroyed me. destroys us. Sin destroys us. This is about the natural result of leaving God behind and every, every kind of sin listed. So in, in verse 28, he goes on, he says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to the depraved mind so that they do not, they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. 
you know, they have, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, you know, arrogant and boastful. They, they, invent ways of, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Y'all hear that? You know, young folks, you know. Anyway, they have, they have, they have no understanding, no f- fidelity, no love, no mercy. And then Paul pushes for the guilty verdict, right? He says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And Paul closes this case. The court sits basically on the edge of their seats. All the excuses, you know, of the godless are empty, like so much, false, so much of the false data out there. The deeds of the wicked sit open for all to see, like secret web searches. Caught with no way out. And then they're, then they're, they're the religious, the people in the juror box. The self-appointed jurors who are, uh, you know, nearly exploding with self-righteous condemnation. And then Paul turns to the jury box. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You, therefore, have no excuse. You have no excuse. You who pass judgment on on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. You do the same things. So at this point, you know, you're hearing the gasps, the gasps in the, in the courtroom. You're like, oh my goodness, look what happened. Look what he did. He turned the tables on them, right? Paul set them up. Every self-righteous hypocrite in the world Every believer who uses Romans 1 to to judge and condemn, Paul says, you're condemning yourself. Looks like all those secret web searches, you know, uh, were also in the history and the favorites of the religious people, too. The case is not closed. Paul did not close the case. And all through chapter 1, Paul calls the wicked people, uh, <coughs> calls, you know, calls the wicked people, they're, they're, they're making, it so, so, making it so easy for them to, to, to point the finger at them, right? But then he turns and says, you, you know, and it goes to anyone who's ever passed judgment, anyone, you know, has used their religious rules to condemn their fellow man. You know, Paul's calling you out. Every point where you judge them, you're condemning yourself. Why? Because you do the exact same thing. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. Now think about it. You know, when you argue Romans 1, you know, over whether or not homosexual acts or sins, it's like cancer patients in a heated debate over, you know, whether or not one spot on another cancer patient is actually cancerous. No, but in truth, we're all riddled with it. We're all, we're all covered in it. You know, you know, sin is deadly. 
And it's going to kill us all. It will kill us all. You know, including the self-righteous condemning of other sinners. Right? We need to move forward and, or, or we'll never get to the cure. We need to move forward because we get, a lot of times people get stuck, with, stuck on different things. So, but like, if you want to ask me whether or not, you know, a forgiven person can continue in the, day, in the gay life or the homosexual lifestyle, you know, read Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. Just read 1 Corinthians 6 and it'll tell you. But for right now, we're going to focus on verse 2. In verse 2, he says, Paul says, now we know that God's judgment um, against those who do such things is based on truth, right? So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, you, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you, know, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to leave you, lead you to repentance. It's an awesome, awesome verse. Verse 4 is awesome. It says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Judgmental, you know, people show contempt for God's kindness. That means they despise it, treat it as worthless. But don't you realize that, you know, God is kind to sinners. He is kind to sinners. God is kind to you to lead you to repent, to change your mind about sin and sinning. You know, repentance is the first step to salvation. They call this verse God's two-by-four, right? God hits you over the head with it. He hits you over the head with kindness. You know, and his people ought to do, we, we as his people, we need to do the same. Amen? But some of the religious crowd refuse to get it, right? In verse 5, it says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And right there, Paul opens up, you know, a thorough argument on the righteousness of God's judgment, the fairness of God. He makes, you know, an allusion to uh, uh, Ezekiel 18, and he says, when he says uh, in verse 6, he says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. That comes from Ezekiel 18. You know, that's it. You know, absolute fairness. Absolute fairness. Now, remember, uh, this is leading up to salvation. You know, apart from the cross, our own, on our own, God gives us exactly what we deserve. He gives us exactly what we deserve. So in verse 7, he says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor and immorality immortality sorry he will give eternal life but for those who are self-seeking and who respect who who are self who are self-seeking and who respect the truth and follow evil and reject the truth and follow evil there will be wrath and anger 
You know, listen, to, to argue uh, hell is unfair is a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction in terms. In the Bible, hell is, by, by its very definition, you know, fair. It's fair. Change the name if you want, but, you know, hell is defined as a place where everyone gets exactly where they de- what they deserve. That's what it is. Wouldn't you get exactly what you deserve? Perfect justice. But in verse 9, he says, you know, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That's a key phrase there, you know, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, you know, because Paul uses it like three times, you know. You know, why? Because in Paul's time, you know, Jews meant, you know, being Jewish, it meant you were religious, it meant that you were religious, you know, in a Gentile, or in your Bible, it might say Greek. You, know, you were the godless and the wicked. That's basically, you know, what it meant that back then. You know, Paul's dealing with the, you know, the mindset of the day. You know, the Jews, Paul's people, thought of themselves as godly and religious. They were the ones who stepped into the jury box but the Gentile, and put, to put the Gentiles on trial. That's what they did. Changed it up a little bit, I did, but you know, you just need to think of like the Jews. The Jews is like you know any religious person who thinks that just by having that religion makes them right <laughs> and the others wrong and other people wrong, right? You know, today it could be you know self righteous Christians or Muslims or Hindu or or Buddhists or anyone basically, you know. But keep in mind that Paul was 100% Jewish. You know, but his, 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 his driving point is that God judges everyone the same. If you do evil, you face trouble. You do good, you find glory. That's basically what it is. In verse 10, he goes on, he says, but, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So now Jews, the Jews thought that they were the favorites, right? Because they had the law. God gave them the law, you know, the Old Testament to the Jews. You know, God taught them right from wrong, but knowing right from wrong is not the same as doing right. Amen? The whole crew, you know, <coughs> excuse me, that the, the whole crew, all the jurors thought that they were good. They were all good because they knew right from wrong. They learned it from, the, you know, from God's law. So Paul drives home, the verse drives it home in verse 13. He says, uh, for it's not those, it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So now Paul is grilling the jury box, you know. What are, he's, he's, he's grilling the jury box, and, so, and one of the godless takes the opportunity. And he says, so, um, if those guys are hypocrites, right, for judging us when they had the law, what about, what about the Gentiles, right? We didn't get the law. We didn't know. So this is like ignorance. They're pleading ignorance, right? We didn't know. We didn't know the law, so we can't be guilty. But Paul answers in verse uh, 14, he says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law uh, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their, conscience are all, their consciences also bearing witness in their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and, and <clears throat> other times even defending them. Your conscience is evidence that accuses you, even if your conscience is trying to defend you. You know, it's proof that you have a law, and God will hold you to it. He'll hold you to it. It's like those old cartoons, right, where uh, the roadrunner runs across the ravine and, like, the wily coyote, like, falls down, you know, or there's this one where um, Bugs Bunny uh, steps off a cliff, and then Yosemite Sam, like, falls down, and, and Bugs goes, you know, it, you know, he says, uh, what did he say? He said, um, it's like, I, I know this defies the law of gravity, uh, but I never studied the law. And so it was like, but that doesn't really work in the, in the real world, though, right? You know, it's, it's a classic cartoon, but it doesn't really work. You know, the very, the very fact that we avoid jumping off cliffs, right, shows that we know that there's a law of gravity, right? You know? And that's, and that's just, the, the, you know, uh, and, and the fact that we avoid sin proves that we know what sin is. It proves that we know what sin is. And, and, and just when the religious crowd thinks that, you know, uh, Paul's back on their side, Paul turns back on them. You know, and he starts in verse 17, and he starts talking about, um, uh, you guys are so convinced, basically, he's saying, you're, you guys are so convinced that the law will save you. You know, you preach against sin, but you do the same things. And, and basically, in verse 24, he goes on, he says, um, he tells them, it's like, you guys are the reason why the, these Gentiles uh, back here are blaspheming God, because you're hypocrites. He's like, calls him out again. And again, and then we end chapter 2. Don't worry, I won't be too long. We end chapter 2 with everyone in the court accused. Everyone is accused. But the verdict isn't in yet, right? So we come to chapter 3. The accused have, have some and the accused have some challenges for, for Paul. And Paul has answers for the hypocrites. And the ones who point out, point out the hypocrites, that their reason is, point out that the, that the hypocrites are their reason for not believing, right? So now chapter 3 holds one of the most important chapters, one, is one of the most important paragraphs in all the Bible. We'll get there. But chapter 3 opens up with several challenges from the accused from the godless, from the wicked, from the, from, the, from the religious. And Paul anticipates the questions, right? And he answers them. And in verse 5, he calls them, quote-unquote, human arguments, right? But in verse 1, he says, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, the, the, the question is asked, what advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in the circumcision? And essentially, they're asking, why did God call us the chosen people if we could judge like everyone else, why did he do that? What do we get out of it? What do they get out of it? And, and, and Paul goes on, he says, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. 
So Paul says here that, that many blessings, there, there are many blessings on, on, to being Jewish, especially having the word, right? They have the word. Now, Paul will deliver, he goes on, you know, to a thorough, you know, answer in, in later on in chapters 9 and 11 of, uh, of Romans. But, but now being Jewish is a blessing. It's a blessing, right? But it's not a free pass from judgment. In the same way, just being religious doesn't give them, get them a get out of hell free card, right? But then one of the godless speaks up. He says, what if some were unfaithful? They're pointing out, at, at, pointing at the religious people, the religious guys now, right? They, it's like, they, hey, you said that these guys were hypocrites, right? He said, you guys are hypocrites. So how am I to be expected to believe that God is faithful, you know, when his people are clearly unfaithful? You know, you know this is the classic, you know, religious people are hypocrites excuse, right? And so Paul responds, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. In other words, no matter what people do, God is still true. Now, if the hypocrites are your judge, you know, that would not be fair, right? But God is your judge, and God is fair, as it is written, so that you may be, uh, be uh, proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And then the third question comes in. In verse 5, he says, but if, our, but if our righteousness brings out God's, uh, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, well, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on, uh, wrath on us? And he says, I'm using a human argument. Basically, he's saying, he's saying in other words, he's saying, you know, my evil, my evil darkness, my sin, you know, just makes God's light look even more brighter, right? Even more brilliant, even more good. And so God's judging, uh, judging me is unfair because it makes him look even better. It's unjust after all, you know? I'm only human, right? I'm only human, we've heard that, we've heard that excuse. It's a fool's defense. Follow that thinking, and Paul says that you're basically asking God not to judge anyone and let all the evil go. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Now, all the arguments are done. All the excuses fall flat. There's no evidence to get out of this one. So verse 9 gives us the closing arguments. Verse 9, he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under the power of sin. Now, have you ever stood in a courtroom or seen on TV or in a movie when a verdict is about to be, uh, be read? And, and, and this is that moment. This is that moment. And, so, and, and since the, the self-appointed jury is just as guilty as the defense, 
right? Paul goes to an Old Testament. Uh, it goes to the Old Testament, and he takes like six different quotes. Takes six, six different quotes uh, that the final body, the, the final verdict is not the con- is is not the conclusion. So the final verdict is is uh, uh, the final verdict is not his conclusion, but it's God's. It's the very words of God, right? So he says, in, he goes on in verse ten. He says, "As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Have you know?" They have, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are, are, open, are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper uh, is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and mystery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But wait, hold on. If everyone is guilty, even the ones who had God's law, what's the point of the law anyway? And verse 19 explains, he goes, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be, will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law, the knowledge of right and wrong, cannot make you good. Can't make you good. Its purpose is to help you know that you're not good. And that's exactly what Paul used it for. To prove that we are guilty. You know, the verdict is final, it's dark, and only one thing left, sentencing. But there's a ray of light. You know, beginning in verse 21, there is hope. Amen? There's hope. Because in verse 21 it says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. It's been made known. That means that the way that we, that to be right with God, you know, to, to, to which the law and the prophets testify, that means that it was the Old Testament and it was always the plan. It was always the plan. In verse 22, it says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To all who believe, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Faith in Jesus makes you right with God. It makes you right with God. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look around. Everyone is guilty. Everyone is guilty. Religion can't save you. Excuses can't save you. All have sinned and fall short. 
In verse 24, he goes on, he says, And all are justified freely um, by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, by Christ Jesus. Redemption means that Jesus bought your freedom and paid full price. Awesome news. Awesome news. He goes on, he says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Amen? That's it. Atonement. Atonement means at one minute. Right? At one minute. When you're not right with your wife or husband, friend or brother or sister, when all is up and <laughs> was all, you know, up and you, you know that you did, you, everything went wrong, you know that you did it, you know, and you, and you wish for something, anything to make it right. That thing is called atonement. In the courtroom, you know, when you stand guilty, you know, remember, this isn't some philosophical, you know, argument or intellectual game or anything like that. You know, if you've ever stood trial or know that you know the stakes are real, the stakes are real. This is you and me on trial. The verdict is in. The sentencing is moments away. And Jesus steps in. And his life, his blood, is the one thing that can make you right with God. Atonement. Atonement. You know, back, in, back to verse 25, you know, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. That means that he showed that, his, that he's good. He showed that he is good. If God is righteous, he has to punish sin. And for a long time, he left sin unpunished. So on the cross, Jesus took that punishment. In 26, it says, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, justify means to, to, to declare righteous, to prove someone good. You know, this is a great miracle of the cross. How can God be both just and forgiving? How can it be just and forgiving? How can it be good if he justifies bad people? Here's God's brilliant plan. It's a great plan. God punishes and Jesus takes the punishment. So he is just to forgive. Now Paul isn't done, right? And the gospel in Romans keeps getting better. Keeps getting better and better. But for now, continue to read and reread Romans, especially verses, verses 21 to 26 here in, in chapter 3. Some Bible scholars say that this is the, mo the greatest paragraph ever written. Ever written. So please take time, you know, and read carefully and consider what is your plea? 
What will your plea be when your trial comes? Will you stand on your own before God? Or will you put your faith in Jesus and get right with God by his blood? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, we are sinners. Lord, and we need you. Lord, there's nothing that we can do on our own that can save us. Lord, it's only you, Lord, who can do that. So, Lord, I just ask, Lord, that we would always place our trust in you, place our hope in you, um, place everything, Lord, in your hands. There's so many times we try to go it on our own. But it doesn't work. Lord, the only way we can be right with God is through you, Lord. Through you, Lord Jesus, through your blood. It's because of your blood that we are called your children. That we are called God's children. That we are called by, his, by, by your name. Lord. So Lord, we just give you today, Lord. We thank you. Lord, we thank you for salvation. Thank you for your gospel, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we as your people will go out and spread your word, spread your good news, Lord, to everyone we come in contact with. In Jesus' name, amen.